Hey, PT people. This is your host, Dr. Nick Gula. I am here joined by Dr. Matt Mary. This is the postdoc PT experience. Today, we are just going to be chatting together. We're not going to have any other guests. It's just going to be me and Matt. And I think we're going to have a pretty good conversation. We have some good topics to, to go through. I have some good reflections that I really want to talk about this week and things that I've learned put together from residency thus far. So right now, this is the third episode that you guys are hearing me and Matt together. This is my 15th month of residency right now at the Ohio State University. Matt has graduated residency and is just about to start at Premier Physical Therapy and Sports Performance down in Delaware. So we hope you guys enjoy this episode. Outside of that, since we don't have a guest, I just wanted to thank you guys. Our listener support has been pretty good over the last couple months and our audience is definitely growing. So really appreciate the support and the feedback we get from some of you guys and keep it coming. We, we are just trying to learn just as much as you guys are. So without further ado, this is the Postdoc PT Experience. What's happening, Matt? Hey, Nick. How's it going? Oh, it's going pretty good. It's good to hear from you again. I know. It's been a while. Yeah, we, uh, well, was that last week that we were together? Or two uh, weeks ago? I think it was two weeks ago now. Awesome. Matt and our, uh, our other friend, Steve, made the, uh, the drive over to Columbus, Ohio from Philly. So it was great to see them. I usually start out with my question, Matt, and I know you, you paused on this last week. Oh, I know your question. <laughs> but I usually start out with my question. I, didn't, I haven't told you this yet, but it's teach me something, but I'm going to flip it on myself. I want to teach okay. you something. All right. Teach. Let's, let's hear it. And this is a shout out to uh, Antonio Lombardo. So thank you, Antonio, for this. I have taken a suggestion from him and I have tried meditation. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I've been meditating for the last eight or nine days now in a row, just taking 10 minutes in the morning after the gym before work. And I'm using the app that he recommended calm. And it's just this self meditation that they, they guide you through it just lets you know how to do it. It makes at least to me, it makes me feel more comfortable and confident with it. They do a really good job. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's something that honestly has has changed a little bit of my outlook on, on day-to-day -day stuff. I feel like I'm, I'm more calm. I'm more collected. I can go through the day and not have really big ups and downs, but be pretty steady. Interesting. I'm losing it a little bit. I'm, I'm not perfect. I think it's going to take more practice. Maybe 10 minutes a day isn't enough for me. I'm, I'm pretty crazy, but I like it so far. I'm going to keep doing this. So you're saying meditation is not just something you do and you're going to do it well. You actually have to practice it. Yeah. Yeah. You have, to, as crazy as that sounds, I think you have to practice it. I mean, I sucked at it in the beginning and honestly, it's like you can make it your own thing. And I think that's the coolest thing is yeah. going through it. Your what you're seeing in your own head and how you envision like what you want to do meditation wise mm -hmm. can, can really, and it's all up to you. It's what you want to get out of yeah. it. Well, believe it or not, I actually 
got into meditation when COVID first started. What? Um, we haven't talked about this before. I not surprised. <laughs> 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 no, um, I, I feel like I used it a little bit differently than you did. Um, I pretty much was using co- uh, meditation to wind down at night. Um, so for me during oh. COVID, I was kind of still hung up on like being inside all day. And I feel like that's the most stressed I've really ever been um, at a certain point in my life. Sure. So I used, I saw that there's an app called Headspace that was providing free downloads and subscriptions to all healthcare providers. So I said, why not check this out? And, um, have you stuck with it? Um, inconsistently, (laughs) Mm. um, I will say I, I, I thought that just being wound up was the reason why I was having difficulty falling asleep. Um, but I think it was more so just screen time right before bed. I was spending way too much time looking at my phone and I cut that out and got better, but I, I definitely do note or notice that I sleep significantly more soundly with less wake ups on nights that I use that app before I mean correlation or causation whatever you want to call it but you're not on your phone when you're meditating you can't you physically can't look at it so right whether it's the meditation or you just not looking at your phone but that's pretty cool that's awesome man see there we go on the same page well yet again I know (laughs) well I I want to push this out to everybody listening to this if, if you haven't tried it before, there's a little bit of a stigma behind meditation and it's a hard thing to do. If you're in a stressful point of your life, if you need something to, to take you out of uh, a higher anxiety or just an anxious state, I'd recommend it. And I think Matt would do. Yep, definitely. Well, let's get into this. So I really wanted to talk about today teaching. And I know both of our residencies had a, had and have a pretty big teaching component to them. And that's why we yeah. chose it. Yeah, absolutely. I just got done in the classroom. We are, unlike you guys right now, we are in person. It's a little bit different, but we're, we're doing the first year's musculoskeletal lab going through everything. Um, I think I got a little bit of the short end of the stick with the the part of lab that I got to teach I I had modalities which kind of hurt me inside just a little (laughs) it's all right they have their place they have their place but when we spend nine hours on them (laughs) that's a long day (laughs) it wasn't in one day it was it was three labs I I like that we do this It, it makes makes our students feel pretty comfortable and confident with it and you can see it but it's modality still. Mm-hmm. So as great as we are, I think in my personal opinion, things need to change a little bit still. But I also got to do the introduction of manual therapy, which is a little bit more down my alley. So that was fun. Sure. So that, that made up for it. But cool. teaching wise though, tell me your experience from when you started teaching in the beginning of residency to even now when you're teaching outside of residency, like you're living sure. the dream. You're, te- yeah. you're outside of residency and you're still teaching. I know. Um, I'm really, really fortunate that Jefferson had a um, position open that I could get involved with beyond uh, residency. But I mean, to answer your question, when I first started teaching, 
Mm-hmm. Um, I guess really for me, it, it kind of started during PT school, especially later on when I started with um, getting involved with tutoring and helping some of the younger students. I was going to say, uh, I think you taught me a couple times during the group study <laughs> sessions. Maybe, maybe. More than a couple times. Yeah, but I'll tell you what. So my definition of teaching back then has completely changed to what it is now. Um, also. So back then it was, let me just regurgitate this information that I know and give it to you, but portray in a way that you will understand. So I thought that that's what teaching was back then. Yeah. And I'm a, that's definitely, I'm a little slow too. So that was a hard job. Well, you got some concepts here and there. <laughs> There's a couple of times that you had to tell me how to do things. It was a nice little compliment or a nice little balance. It was a good 75, 25. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but anyways, uh, so what I was saying is that early on, so early in residency in the ortho curriculum or mm-hmm. even during PT school, it was very much the students coming to me with these questions um, for like what and how basically. So it's this very surface level understanding. And so at that point in my career, it was really just information sharing, but trying to do so in a way that the students could understand um, and clearly um, comprehend the material. So in the beginning, you took you, the concepts that you learned and understood and basically showed people how you mapped them out in your own brain. It, yeah, exactly. So it was more, it wasn't selfish, um, but it was more of taking a personalized approach and saying, this is how I interpreted this concept. And this is how I understood this concept. And this is, these are the mnemonics I use and the analogies I use and the, all these different tools to help me understand the material and kind of giving that information to the students and saying, use it if it works for you. Um, but I mean, this is, this is be, what you need to know. Let's be real here though. Part of teaching is selfish. Yes, I agree uh, with that. It, we're, like I'm doing it right now, not only for their gain, but for my gain as well. It's, right the more you know something, the better you can teach it. Right. The better you can teach it, the more you know something. Right. Absolutely. It's that positive feedback loop. And I completely agree with that. But to get back to your question, so how it transformed, is it kind of moved from that where I was just word vomit for all of this information that I was giving to the students. So it's Mm. like, this is the information you need to know. Here's the answer to the question that you asked me. And through mentorship and talking to the faculty that I got to work with on a daily basis, mm-hmm. um, I started to quickly realize that that's not necessarily the best for retention and the overall global understanding that the students have. So it started to transition towards more of a, what do you think? And like, what do you think the answer is? And can I help you reason through this question rather than just giving you the answer, if that makes sense? Um, And I found that the students actually retain the information and understand it a lot more clearly when they come to the answers themselves rather than just you telling them the answer. So do you guys, like we had in PT school and we have this at Ohio state as well, but do you have your students fill out feedback forms at the end of the course? And do they give you feedback on your teaching style? 
Yeah, they do. Now, did they mention when you changed or like as you were evolving and you put more of this, I'm going to pose the question back to you and help you reason through it. Did that change your feedback? Um, yes and no. So a lot of the feedback that I was getting, it was pretty mixed between all of the students. So some of the students really loved frank responses and just being told the answer. Mm -hmm. um, and some students really, really, really enjoyed me helping get them to the answer themselves. Um, so yes and no, it did change a little bit. Um, but one of the things that I did notice improve from earlier on to later in the residency mm -hmm. um, was that the students became appreciative of, so rather, rather than me help individually helping them come to the answer, I would also pose that question to the rest of the class and having the class uh, work together and collaborate to see if they could come to the answer as a team. Um, and I got a lot of good feedback on that as well. We call it think, pair, share. Yeah, there you go. Whatever you want to label it as. <laughs> Whatever you want to label it. But I think, I think that's important what you said about some people liked it, some people didn't. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest things that I've realized is that you're not going to be, your teaching style is not going to please everyone, mm -mm. no matter what. Right. There's always going to be those people that are, are learn one way or learn the other, and you can't possibly give them visual, tactile, listening style teaching. I mean, right. just not there. I think, I think an important part though, is distinguishing between those students that just want the answer mm -hmm. and distinguishing between those that are okay with not having the answer and want to think through it and, and are trying, mm -hmm. right? Let's call them the triers versus the not triers. <laughs> and it so sounds, harsh. <laughs> it's, it sounds really harsh, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> I mean, Let's be frank though, that's what it is. Like, like you can do this and maybe your, your thought processes aren't there yet. And that's probably a reflection on your teacher and like, but it's also a reflection on yourself and your either passion for the material. So like, let's say neuro, I mean, I wasn't a completely there with neuro. I, I, I pushed a little bit, but I probably wasn't the same level of engaged as I was with the ortho content. Mm -hmm. So don't blame people for that. But at the same time, that's how, that's how you learn best. That's how things solidify. Right. So if you're, if you're out there and you're just seeking the answer, don't. No, I'm just kidding. Well, well do you it, think that that changes as you develop as a student though? Because I was very much a question or an answer seeker early on in PT school. Mm -hmm. And then up, as I got later into PT school and really even into residency, it became more of a, how can you help me get to the answer myself rather than you just telling me the answer? No, as, as, as frank that I was about the trying versus not trying, I was in the not trying for a long time too. Was, yeah. Like you said, it was probably wasn't a choice. It was just a, this is where our thought process is and your thought process evolves. But I think it's important to help people understand that communicate that to your students and say, I want your thought process to evolve, right. not just have them out there in space 
asking these Socratic method questions and then them being frustrated and you being frustrated because they're not getting it. Like, right. Lay it out there. You learning all the time. Isn't innate. Right. People learn differently. Yes. But it, it, there's a different process for each person. And the more you can communicate that and the more clear you can be with that method and, and how you want them to step through things and why you're doing things, they're going to get to the why themselves a little bit more. Right. It's not easy. It's, it's really, it's really not easy, but heading it off, I think in, in the beginning is, is something that you might need to do to push not only yourself, but your students. Yeah. I mean, I also, especially later on, as I got more comfortable in that teaching uh, role and the teaching roles that I have, um, I, as I got more comfortable, I started very early on um, with my engagement in the students and just kind of laying out how I am and what my style is and uh, that I'm, I'm totally open to feedback. And if there's things that I do that students don't like, let's have a conversation. Mm -hmm. I'm here to help you learn. So that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean I'm perfect. That doesn't mean I know all of the answers because I definitely do not. Mm-hmm. But I'm also, I recognize that not everybody learns the same way. And I'm totally willing to try to adapt and modify to an extent to help more people understand the material, but also where I'm coming from and why I'm doing what I'm doing. So what does that sound like, people? I mean, if you're just thinking that what, he, what Matt just said in regular terms, like, that's prognosis. That's what we should be doing first day in the eval laying out. I expect in six to eight weeks to know how your joint is going to respond to this, or this is the stepwise process. We ultimately want to get you back to power and plyometric and running before we get there. We need to build strength before that. And then even before the strength, we need to have work capacity and endurance of those muscles. So you're laying it out there and, people have expectations and people do better with expectations, right? You're setting expectations for your class. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely am big on expectation setting both in the clinic and with my students. Um, I just feel like if everybody's completely informed and they know how things are going to work, um, there's not really any curveballs or surprises and everyone just kind of seems to, um, go with the flow a little bit easier. Yeah. I'm thinking back to, the professors that I've had in the past that were good versus the professors that I've had in the past that were great. Mm-hmm. And like, I can see some of our professors here at Ohio state and I can see the differences too. And what I'm seeing is more of what you just said is the people that are real that lay mm-hmm. out what the expectations are, how they expect the learning to go. They challenge their students, but at the same time you bend and you flex towards right. their needs. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really important. Um, And I by no means would put myself at the same level as some of these people that have been teaching much, much longer than me. But (laughs) of course not. Yes, I think I think the best teaching comes with time and experience. And the more you go through it, the more you're going to be able to understand the types of questions or the curveballs that come up in different types of learners. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Definitely not not saying that I'm there or you're there. 
But I think it's interesting because our experience has led us to this point. Right. And our, we didn't have experience before and thus we weren't at this point. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see even in a year's time, we keep this up. I know. How that changes. Yeah. I'm, I'm really excited and I'm, I'm really definitely going to be continuing to actively um, as much as I can stay engaged in teaching. And um, fortunately, it seems like the company that I'm joining is uh, pretty much on board with me staying involved in teaching to some degree. So that's awesome. To it. That's awesome. In terms of black versus gray, black and white versus gray teachings, mm -hmm. has that changed at all for you in, in what information you choose to give out versus the information that you choose to withhold? Um, that's a great question. Um, I'm full of them. I, <laughs> way to toot your own horn there. <laughs> oh, just kidding. Um, yeah. I've been working on being my, on my own side, Matt, and yeah. <laughs> being less uh, self-negative. So I being your own cheerleader. <laughs> exactly. You're, you're hearing no. the change right in front of your eyes. No, that's good for you. I'm, I'm I would say that I'm my biggest cheerleader. So, <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, it definitely has, I think, it's a really complicated question and there's a lot of nuance with that because there's a lot that it depends on. So, yeah. So the, the biggest thing for me that it depends on is where at the student is in their learning. Mm -hmm. So when I'm with a third year student and I'm helping them reason through clinical scenarios or even classwork, um, it's, I definitely take a more nuanced approach. And I think the reason why I do that is because they have more information readily available in their brain and they're, they've been through enough in their career uh, as a student. And I think that at that point, there's almost an expectation um, that they need to recognize the nuance and they need to recognize that there are oftentimes multiple correct answers. They're smarter than they realize. Exactly. Exactly. At that, at that point, as a third year PT student, or even late second year PT student, I think a lot of things that students struggle with is that they know a heck of a lot more than they think they know. If you're a third year student listening to this right now, tell yourself out loud, I know more than I realize. Yeah. I guarantee it you do. And honestly, that's one of my favorite things about teaching is when you are working with students and they come to this realization of the answer that they didn't think they were going to get there or they didn't think that they knew that information and they get there and you can see the reactions on their faces that they yeah. that they came to the answer themselves. Um, honestly, that's kind of what keeps me in the game. Um, but to get back to your question. Yeah, keep getting back the, to my question, man. Come on. About the black and the white. <laughs> um, Versus the gray. Yep. Yeah. So with the first year students, this was hard for me because I love nuance. I love, I love that there's not a right way and a wrong way. You're such a sophisticated guy. Uh, I would not say that by any means whatsoever, but I love <laughs> nuance. And I, I definitely disagree with just boiling things down to right versus wrong. Um, Cause I, I love this like long form conversation that we can dive into nuance. I think that's why I like podcasting with you so much because I like nuance. <laughs> I thought you were going to say you like me a lot. Well, that too, but I don't have to tell you that. I'm pretty sure you know that. <laughs> I do. Um, Thanks, buddy. But anyways, so 
with the first year students, they do a lot better with black and white. So they do a lot better with this is how you do it versus there are, this is one way to do it, but there are a bunch of other ways to do it. And so for example, one of the things that I've noticed, particularly while helping um, Jefferson with their biomechanics lab mm-hmm. and doing a lot plug, of- Give me your plug. So with like a lot of the goniometers, I don't need to plug myself, let's keep moving. <laughs> um, so we're working on a lot of like palpation skills and range of motion, manual muscle testing. So a lot of the PT exam stuff. Um, and when we're going through and I'm teaching these strategies, it's very easy for me to say, yeah, this is how they want you to learn it, but you're never going to do this in the clinic or you're this is only one way to do it. I do it this way. So I think that that is more of the balance that I'm fighting right now is what do the, what does the student actually need to know versus is there something that I can tell the students that will progress them further, but not overwhelm them? Have you taught first year students at Drexel? What was your, what was your role? I don't believe I taught first year students at Drexel. I'm pretty sure they were early second years when we first started. That's interesting. The only experience that I have is with first year students. Okay. So it's, it's cool to hear you talk about the nuance and what, what you're saying to, to these third year students. And honestly, I'm excited to, to be a CI for one of those reasons to do mm-hmm. that. But I've, I've had a lot of the, the opposite experience and the experience that it sounds like that you're in right now is struggling through right now. <laughs> I'm sure you're not struggling, but talking and teaching to first year students. And that's kind of why I posed the question not, not, not to set you up or anything like that. I didn't, I honestly thought you worked with first year students and mm-hmm. uh, at Drexel. So that's cool to hear. You have a broad background now. And that's, that's something that I, I need to, to work at and, and seek a little bit more of, but with the first year students, I totally agree. I'm not only going to say that it's a good idea to do black and white. I'm going to say they need black and white. Mm-hmm they not only crave it, but they also need it from the comprehension standpoint. Like you need to have a foundation. You need to have a base. Yeah. And I if we, we don't allow them to have that, then we can put them off on the wrong foot already and make easy concepts that don't seem that easy at first seem and forever seem hard maybe mm-hmm. if they don't if they don't look at it and honestly like teaching a first year student leaves a lot of an impact on the rest of their career and like where their thought process is they're pretty impressionable mm-hmm. as as we were yep I completely agree I definitely can think back to first year and I still have some of the habits that my first year professors yeah pushed on me or at least harped on so it's interesting to see our, our second or uh, our junior resident class. They're the main ones in, in the lab right now doing the TAing and teaching. As a senior resident, I'm only in, I was only in class for about six weeks-ish because we break up the semester between the three senior residents. So one senior resident gets the beginning, I got the middle and the low end of the totem pole with modalities. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm not salty at all. And no, another no. another gets the the end. So for my role, I was more of a, a supervisor role in the sense that like observing the the junior residents teaching and and helping when needed, but also playing more of a guidance mm-hmm. type role. And things that I've noticed is that it's hard for some of them. I'm not going to say names. It's hard for some of them to get out of their own head and make it black and white. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I think I'm still there too, <laughs> as far as like starting to work with first year students. Um, but I also think that I've, I know that I can't introduce nuance to them too early. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things that I try to do is present the information as black and white as possible, mm-hmm. but also introduce the reason why they need to know this material or why they should appreciate it. Uh, and so, for example, one of the things that we're working on is like palpation skills and mm-hmm. uh, like identifying bony landmarks and soft tissue landmarks. And a lot of the students. Um, <laughs> That's extremely gray in its own right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> By nature of palpation. <laughs> oh, you're feeling this muscle and this protuberance right. and bull. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> My hand is on your so is major right now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but um, so one of the reasons or one of the things that I'm trying to do is keep it bl- as black and white, but so right now, just as a background as to like how Jefferson's handling, handling their labs is it's like a hybrid model. So it's mostly online and then there's some in-person sessions um, to review skills, but also to introduce introduce new material. Okay. So basically I'm watching videos of the students practicing these skills and then I'm providing feedback to them um, on their techniques, their biomechanics, uh, if they're on the right structure and things like that. So um but basically, a lot of the students are just putting their hands on their patients in the videos, uh, and there's definitely, it, it really seems like there's not really a method as to what they're doing or why. And I get that. Early on, they're just doing what they're told to do. They're matching what they see on the mm-hmm. textbook or the video. Um, but one of the reasons that I'm trying to add perspective is because for me, I become more engaged when I know why I'm doing something. Sure, having a thought process and a reason behind it. Exactly. And so I'm trying to help them keep things black and white, but also trying to help them recognize why we're doing what we're doing. I like that. I think it boils down to, there's no easy way to keep things black or white or, or like right versus wrong way of doing it my opinion in this is that you just need to go into it with the into teaching these first and maybe uh beginning second year students that you need to go in with the mindset and the understanding that i need to trim down the information that i present. sure i think i think that's if we make things as simple as possible like you do that you're going to be doing them much more service than giving them all the other reasons now, at the same time, I also think it's important to still go back to our prognosis and to be able to go into this isn't going to be what you accept as true forever. This is what I need you to know now. We will build on it. 
sure. understand these fundamental concepts. And I think kind of going off of that a little bit more, um, it's really easy to get lost in what first year physical therapy students need to know um, versus what would be nice for them to know. Um, and then um, one of my mentors boiled this down to me, which really has helped my teaching a lot mm -hmm. is providing information to the students in a way that is need to know, nice to know, and good to know. So need to know is the things that they absolutely need to pass the exam and to succeed in the course. Nice to know is things that could potentially um, like enhance their understanding or comprehension of the material. Mm -hmm. And then good to know is really that nuanced stuff. And that's like, yes, this is how we're laying it out to you now. But as you start to get out and practice, you're going to realize it's not as black and white as that. I would think the information. I would think it would be need to know, good to know, nice to know. Maybe it's that. I could have misquoted it, but <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Either. No, you're right. <laughs> I'm just messing with you. But no, I think I think that's important. You can also you can honestly build a uh, an objective slide, nice and simple and easy with that. I I really don't like when objective slides are really big and long and busy because mm -hmm. you know you just gloss over it. Sure. I'm absolutely. not going to look at it. You're not going to look at it. That's I'm not going to read it to you in class. I'm, I might talk about it, but you're not going to retain anything. Cause you're like, Oh, there's a lot. Oh, Talk for sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm, I, to be completely honest, that's how I was as a student going through Jefferson and looking at the objective slides. I read the ones that were super short and sweet and the ones that were like 45 things didn't look at. It's how I still am in residency. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. Um, one other thing that I want to talk about before we move on from teaching is accepting wait for it. Silence. Yeah. Not being afraid to really be on that side of the picture and realizing that people need time to think, mm -hmm. give them the time to think. Don't get uncomfortable with 20 to 30 seconds of silence, embrace it and then move on. Mm -hmm. But I think that's, that's something that's also lost. And one of our professors here at Ohio State does that very, very well, John DeWitt. So it's something that I'm hopeful to, to continue to practice and work on. And honestly, I'm not where I need to be teaching wise. And I, I thank my students that I've had so far and their, their, their help towards me to understanding things and their grace towards allowing me space. And I hope to continue to push forward and, sure. and keep going that way. Do you have anything so, else to add on teaching? Yeah, I was just going to ask you a question based on the silence. How do you differentiate between the silence of not knowing or not being prepared versus the silence of comprehension and trying to think through the question that was just posed? Um, I don't really think there's a big difference because I don't know if you can, I don't know if there's a way to differentiate that. Maybe you, you can help me with that. But I think, 
I think there's a difference between you asking a really stupid question. And I say stupid very harshly, but I mean it lightly. I mean it as something that's very basic or it's on the slide and you're still asking, then you're not going to get the answers you're looking for or even answers at all. Right. I'm not going to answer. I don't expect you to answer either, but maybe, maybe thinking about the question that you pose and is it the right question? And after you get past that, then does it matter? Right. You yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know that I have the answer to it. I was just curious. It's just something that kind of popped into my head as we were discussing it. Um, And I don't think I have the answer, but I definitely agree with you that if there's truly a silence, is it, I frequently ask myself, was that a stupid question? And they're just staring at me because they're thinking to themselves, well, no, duh, we know the answer to this question. Um, And to be honest, because because I'm still learning as a teacher that's often the first thing that pops into my head oh it happens (laughs) it happens but yeah I I was just curious to hear what your thoughts were on that yeah I think it's it's an interesting it's an interesting question it's a nuanced question um it's something that I'm gonna look into more and think about more so I'll get back to you on it okay let's switch gears because now I want to talk about something else other than soft skills. By the <laughs> way, I, I realized I did a little bit of an inventory of, of our podcast and, and like, like what we've talked about, what our guests have talked about, and what I harp on. And I harp on soft skills a lot. I think you opened my eyes to that with the last episode. I was pretty, I tried to be a little more objective in the last episode. And I, and I, I knew that going in. And honestly, I think that is a really important thing to consider in PT and in residency and why. Well, I feel like, I feel like soft skills are a big part of residency to begin with. Yeah. It's a big part of the nuanced, using your word again. I know. It's a big part of the nuanced physical therapist. Right. But at the same time, it's not everything. So Let's talk about evidence and research a little bit. We talked sure. and touched on teaching. We both are in that boat now. Um, where are you at research and evidence wise? Are you doing any research right now? Like what's going on? So right now I'm not doing, or I'm not participating in any active or ongoing projects. Um, I did submit a presentation or a post presentation to CSM. How'd you do? Um, How'd you do? You I'm still waiting. I haven't heard anything back yet. So I actually have to follow up with them pretty soon. Okay. Um, but I'm actually planning on hopefully finishing the abstract that I submitted nice. as far as the paper itself and hopefully try to publish that paper in either JOSPT cases or another physical therapy journal of some sorts. And is it a case study then? It is a case study, correct. What's, well, give, me, give me an elevator pitch synopsis of it. Yeah, so basically right now there's not a ton of literature on uh, outcomes and how people do after uh, chronic exertional compartment syndrome, particularly um, conservative care versus uh, having surgery to take care of it. Fashion I know obvious. they're there is a lot of literature on how changing running mechanics can actually reduce the chronic exertional compartment syndrome symptoms, mm-hmm. um, but there's not a lot of direct good evidence that compares surgery versus conservative. Um, as you can imagine, really? all, of this, all of the surgical outcome surgeries show that surgery is superior 
to doing nothing, basically. <laughs> no, it's not biased um, towards surgery at all, is it? So, <laughs> maybe just a little bit. Okay. <laughs> but so basically, as I was looking into that a little bit more closely, because mm-hmm. I had a patient in the clinic with that um, who happened to have surgery, um, I was trying to figure out expectations as far as timeline, how he was going to do prognostically, mm-hmm. and getting back to ice hockey. So in my literature search, I stumbled upon an article by Dr. Amy Schubert out of the University of Wisconsin, I believe. Okay. And she kind of did over there in Wisconsin. Yeah, she did a scoping review of sorts of mm-hmm. the literature on outcomes and the pathophysiology. And she did a really good job at putting together a guideline to kind of not shape your treatment off of exactly, but just to give some suggestions on how to proceed and when the patients are ready to proceed. Is it the and best evidence kind of guideline? Is that best what she's trying to get at? Basically, it's like based on the current evidence that we have, what's the best way to proceed with these patients? And so, and so after looking at that, I did stop there and I looked at if there were any examples of using that guideline as being successful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I looked on hundreds of different articles and databases and didn't see anything that was really in support of it working. But I did find one case study, uh, and I can't cite who who wrote that case study, but it was with a group of cadets um, and showed that the use of that led to a successful return to boot camp or um, something along those lines. And so I was kind of looking to provide some more low level evidence that the use of this guideline might be successful and have a role in treating patients of this population. Awesome. I think that's really interesting. I uh, would be one of the first to want to read that. Send it my way. If you need uh, editing help, I can read it for you. Absolutely. I'll do that. What, uh, just because we're on the subject and I want to know, what are some of the ways that we can change gait, especially from the, the running Drexel guru yeah. himself what yeah so are ways we can change the gate to help with this compartment syndrome sure so a lot of it's going to depend on the patient in front of you okay. um obviously that's the answer to every question yeah <laughs> yeah yeah but is there any like but, super consistent or yeah so my typical starting point and this is the reason why this is my typical starting point is based on what the literature says but also the mentorship that i've received from people that have been working with runners for a hell of a lot longer than me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I find that the easiest place to start with that is to just increase the cadence. Um, So rather than- Cadence is the go-to for everything, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So rather than telling people they need to not land on their heels and they need to focus on landing on the balls of their feet, I find that if you just give someone a, basically a graded feedback program um, to get them to a higher- base level cadence mm-hmm. um, that they do pretty well and that their symptoms often go away. Do you guys do that with the metronome? Uh, yeah, usually I feel like metronome is the is probably my go-to. And then if people have Spotify, I'll often recommend Playlists some of with... the, the playlists that have the preset beats per minute. What's, the, uh, what's your guys' guideline on how much you change in, initially? Is there, a, is there a agreed upon thing at Drexel? Um, so again, it kind of depends on the patient. Um, and I, I can't remember exactly what some of the literature says. Um, but I think that you see 
changes in, in like increase in cadence and I think the number is 30%. So if you just increase their cadence 30%, I think you can start to see changes in their gait pattern. I think some of the stuff that I've read has been a little bit lower than that. Okay. It, it, at, might, it very well might be at least 10%. In, at least in, initially. I've seen even downwards of around five to 10% as being mm -hmm. effective. But that's interesting. Okay. But 30% is pretty well received at the Drexel area. And I think it depends also on their initial cadence. Um, so if their initial cadence is very, very low, I do like to try to get them up higher, but also not making it so high that they can't maintain the cadence. Yeah, because if you, if you make it high and you make it too high, then you can get some bounce back compens compensatory right. effects. Yeah. Meaning basically shin splints, right? Sure, absolutely. And um, isn't like help me understand this, but what increasing the cadence is going to take pressure off the joints, put more pressure distributed into the muscles themselves, theoretically, correct? Theoretically. Sure. How does that affect compartment syndrome? So I think that has to do with ground reaction forces. So as you increase the cadence, there's also some literature that shows okay. that your ground reaction, so your vertical excursion can actually yep. reduce. Gotcha. So it's not the, the actual pressure in the muscles. Cause I was thinking along the lines of it's, if we're going to load the muscles up even more, like they're going to, that those compartments are going to get even tighter. Right. But you're looking at it more along the lines of biomechanics. Biomechanics and also, also gotcha. if we think about the eccentric requirement of heel striking, mm -hmm. um, as far as dorsiflexion goes, we know that, um, well, we think that possibly some of the pathomechanics that contribute to um, chronic exertional compartment syndrome is that repetitive dorsiflexion force as well. Gotcha. So you're decreasing that a little bit with the the amount that they're going to have to do because the stride is less, the cadence is less. Sure. And hopefully underneath them a little bit more too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all, yeah. all in one, but cool. Hey, congrats. That's our first uh, clinical discussion on here. I don't yeah, want to make it a big clinical podcast, but I like no, it. And I, and I feel like also to just be fair, like, like, I don't have this literature sitting right in front of me and oh, neither do I. several months out now. So if I misrepresented or misquoted any of those articles by, by all means, I'll happily send you the articles so that you can. I do. I would, them. I would like the articles myself, but at the same time, what you know and what you put out there now is not a representation of you as a person. It's a representation of you and your understanding at this moment in time. Right. Exactly. Right. So we're growing. All of you are growing. Matt might be wrong. I think it was a little wrong with the 30%. <laughs> I'm just yeah, kidding. Whatever. I'm just kidding. I don't, I don't hundred percent know myself, but I usually go around the 10% mark to start with just a, a personal preference and what we, what we talk about here at Ohio state from some of the numbers, but it's, it's really cool to see the differences and you guys it, over at Drexel and like your mentors do exceedingly well with running athletes. If you guys are interested in running athletes and you don't know what goes on at Drexel University, which you probably already do without realizing it, but 
look it up. They, they are really, really good at what they do over there. For sure. Yep. It's a great shout out. I would also uh, second that shout out. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay. So that's your own literature. I know, I know we discussed a little bit before the show that we might want to talk about how our practice changes with digesting some of this new literature that's coming out. What particularly did you want to talk about regards to that? I'm curious. Yeah, so the biggest thing that I wanted to pose to you, and this is something that I've been curious about because of my observations of other clinicians, um, particularly in journal clubs, um, so sitting down, reading an article, critically analyzing mm-hmm. it, taking it apart, digesting it, and then at the end of the journal club deciding, are we going to implement this into our practice or do we need more information? Sure. Um, or is this article bogus and we're just going to set it to the side and never <laughs> look at it again? Because that does happen too. <laughs> yes. Um, so the question that I have after observing different people's responses to new literature or reading articles, mm-hmm. how does your practice change after you read a new article that comes out? Let's say it's a good article, you scrutinize it. And well, I think it's important to talk about, before you get into that, I think it's important to talk about how do you understand that it's a good article or not yeah it's a great question i mean that's not an easy thing to do right no some of the best advice that i have received is as hard as it is don't just read the abstract don't just go to the discussion don't just go to the conclusion right simply speaking if you do that you are taking the author's opinions as fact right with that being said, is that the best way to utilize evidence? No. Right. Can we trust everybody's opinions? Do they trust their own opinions at that moment in time? Maybe, maybe not. Right. It's, it's something that is, is hard to, it's hard to really accept. Even on, even on my side, I find myself still wanting to habitually jump to that, but I would recommend first and tell me if you do something different, but go right to the tables, mm-hmm. go right to the actual results section. See if it's written real well, first of all, if they're trying to hide anything, if the results make sense, then if the results make sense, form your own conclusions from the results section, right? Like they right. give you the, they give you the facts and only the facts. Then think to yourself, as maybe a little bit time-consuming as it might be, what does this mean for my practice? How can, how can I change this? Then I think it's cool to then go and compare what they said in the discussion and see if things line up, if there's right. discrepancies, where the focus is. So that's my short little how to go through research and critically digest it. Do you have anything different that you do? No, I mean, I, I do the same thing. That's what I was taught at Drexel. Um, Fortunately, we, we worked not only with the clinicians um, and the the other faculty members, but also uh, we're fortunate enough to work pretty closely with PhDs and have them, um, whether they already have their PhD or their PhD candidates in our journal clubs, 
Um, so they really taught us the importance of going straight to the statistics. Um, the biggest difference that I have is I, I check out the hypothesis first just to see what they're trying to do anyways. Um, That's a good point. Seeing, seeing I think I do too. Seeing if it's directional or if we already know the answer to their hypothesis and don't even need the research article to begin with. Um, sure. But, so I start there and then I go straight into the statistics and see, and also the methodology. So is their methodology set up in a way that tries to get results in an unbiased manner? Or did they set up the, met, the, the study in a way that's going to give them the answer they were looking for? Is it, does it hide things versus right. is it very transparent? Exactly. If, if you can't understand like, how they did something and replicate it yourself, most likely they're hiding something, right. whether intentional or un unintentional. Most of the time, yeah. I would say, and I, I think people are good, <laughs> most of the time it's unintentional. But yeah, a well-written article is something that you can follow from point A to point Z. Right. And I think part of that, though, honestly, is some of the word count restrictions on publishing, because you do have to cut out a pretty substantial amount point. from your research articles. Um, so right. I think that's a barrier. That's a big barrier to publishing research is mm -hmm. the word counts and trying to get your articles small enough. To I'm fit. fighting through it right now as we speak. Right. So I, I can um, totally get that. But let's get back to the point of this. So once you're able to do that, once, and you don't need to know statistics to do this. That's why there's statisticians that translate that for you in the results section. Right. <laughs> but once, once you get to that point, how do I, your question was, how do I incorporate maybe this new literature into my practice? Right. Are you adaptive to it? So do you immediately change your practice? Say it's a good study and you're like, yep, let's incorporate it. Or do you take a more defensive stance and say, well, let's not implement it quite yet. Maybe uh, I'll start considering yeah. it, but I'm not going to change what I'm doing. I, as much as I really want to sometimes, I really question what a single study brings to the table. Mm -hmm. like, yes, it's great. It might give me a new idea. It might give me a novel idea if, if it's something that, um, that we're struggling with together, me and the patient and that we're plateauing or we can't get through. And this, for whatever reason, fits our situation perfectly, then maybe I'll try it. Yeah. But I think I'm more along the lines of being defensive. I think that's the word that you use, right? Defensive and not implementing it at first, waiting for more research to come out, waiting for discussions that I have with other clinicians and not just taking it on face value. Sure. What, what have you seen? What do you do? So I feel like I kind of side on the same side that you do. Um, I mean, to be transparent early on, I was very more towards that adaptive side where I was super, super excited when new literature came out. Oh, you see something cool. You're pumped. You're like, I, oh, I want to be on the forefront. I'm going to be right. evidence-based. Right. Exactly. Um, and now that I have more of an appreciation for reading literature and understanding the body of evidence, required to allow us to do things confidently. Mm -hmm. I think I do take a little bit more of a defensive stance when I'm reading articles 
And that's not saying that I'm not going to change what I'm doing. If there's a really good research article that comes out. um, But you're, you're generalizing to articles as a whole. Correct. Okay. So, I mean, I always come back to this and this has been proven. What's the biggest predictor of somebody's success in physical therapy? What is it, Matt? Their expectations. Yes their expectations of how they're going to do their belief is physical right. therapy going to work. If that's the biggest thing still. Right. Shiny tools are shiny tools. Exactly. But who gives a shit? <laughs> right. Absolutely. Do the fundamentals, the basics. Well, fine tune, trim up when you need to keep and by all means, keep pushing new evidence, new literature. We need a lot of it. Sure. Especially for how long it takes to get it implemented into across the board. We, we are not where we need to be research wise. As far as my small peanut brain comprehension can understand. (laughs) Yeah. I don't think we're where we're at. We need to keep working and keep pushing. We need more people to do research. We, we need people passionate about research. So if you're one of those, I thank you. Our profession thanks you, but Okay. Okay. I think that's an important thing to digest though. Just like what we talked about in general, where we went from teaching and we talked about centering yourself before teaching and meditating and calming down and then understanding yourself and then helping other people's understand their own thoughts, Mm -hmm. whether it's a first year student, whether it's a third year student or somebody in between, or even a resident or even another peer thinking about what, what is the thing that we need to know, the thing that we need to pay the most attention to, the principle versus what's good to know, what's nice to know and shaping it around that. And I think that it blends well into that last conversation that we had with research. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that if, obviously I'm biased because I really like that piece of mentorship that I was given with the whole need to know, good to know, nice to know. Mm-hmm. Um, I just I took it. Like, I ran with it. I feel like uh, that's started to take a pretty big impact on how I do things on a day-to-day basis and interact with every single patient and um, what implementing literature um, and even teaching. Nope. I think it's, it's really good. And that's a really good way of putting it, but at the end of the day, we need to be able to simplify things in our own minds and then simplify things in the minds of our patients and the minds of our students. Sure. Now that's not without saying that there's not, it depends situations all over the place. I love nuance. (laughs) What, what do you like? Nuance. (laughs) (laughs) But, but in all, in all serious now, like, I think that is the end goal is if you can, take the full breadth and bandwidth of information that we have in the PT profession, whether it comes to biomechanics, whether it comes from the anatomy, whether it comes from just psychosocial tendencies, like putting all that and boiling it down to a simplistic, easy to follow timeline for yourself and for others, then you're on your way to enlightenment. Awesome. We'll get there too. <laughs> uh, maybe eventually. Yeah. I think I think the people listening will get there before us. But 
Speaking of, thank you everybody for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. We, uh, again, just want to thank you for the continued support. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, people. Until next time. See everybody. Peace. Peace.